I wanted to embody the practice of law with the philosophy of understanding that the most important thing about how to resolve complex problems is to understand the different perspectives. And so it's not really so much about advocating for your own viewpoint. It's really about understanding that you will be most persuasive and influential if you authentically get where other people are coming from and allow that to influence your own viewpoint. Interdisciplinary in her approach to the law, but grounded in the desire to put the human elements front and center, Betsy Miller, Dartmouth 96, started asking where others in the legal profession were going to get the leadership lessons they needed to succeed in the field. Find out how sometimes you need to step up and answer your own questions in order to make a real impact on today's Roads Taken with me, Leslie Jennings Rowley. I am here with my friend Betsy Miller, and I'm excited to have her join this conversation about Roads Taken because her roads have taken her chiefly in the into the field of law. But there are so many aspects of that that she's explored and become a leader in that we can talk about that and all the other facets of her life. So welcome. I'm super happy to be here. This is such a great idea. Thanks, Leslie. So the way I tend to start these interviews is to have you think back to those college days and answer for me, who were you in college And when we were preparing to leave, who did you think you were going to be? You know, I listened to a couple of your fabulous early episodes. And so I knew this question was coming and yet it did not prepare me to answer it. (laughs) I feel like when I look back on college, I have the weird perspective that what I was was kind of lazy. (laughs) Well, only because you were probably asked a lot of in law school, but (laughs) it actually was compared to high school. I had, we, you know, we had all been in high school in the late eighties and into the early nineties. And at that time I was a pretty um, involved student activist. It was the time of AIDS and sex education. And I was really involved in getting things like condoms into high schools in Massachusetts. And that was pretty controversial. And I was I was just involved in a bunch of stuff politically and athletically and all sorts of different things. And I got to college and I sort of thought I should take a breath. And so it was just kind of a wide open space for me. I I feel like I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of people from our class like might not even know who I was because I don't think I did that much other than than like play some soccer and try out for a bunch of acapella singing groups, which mostly but not entirely um, did not let me enter them. steady jobs and some good friends. So I feel like the one thing that I was really lucky enough to have a good perspective on, even from the beginning, was that those four years in that quiet town before the time of the internet and cable television really was a time to just grow and explore and be really intellectually curious in a way that didn't need to have a linear path to any particular place. And so I felt like in a lot of ways, that was the the time in my young adult life when I probably felt most grounded and just very, very open to the experience and really feel like I got to soak it all in socially and educationally and just intellectually. And I kind of knew or thought I knew I was going to go to law school at the end of college, although there was this period of time I was a comparative literature major, which if you've never heard of, don't worry, there were only three of us. Um, (laughs) I had this brief moment in time where I thought I would maybe get my PhD in comparative literature and continue to do things like 
studying the sociolinguistics of like totem and taboo and emerging Latin American cultures. And I would be all alone in the dirt cowboy in a beret smoking a cigarette and I didn't smoke. <laughs> so I figured I had a um, pretty wide berth to explore intellectually while I was in college because I had a plan that I was going to go to law school. And, and because I had come from a small town in Massachusetts and because the internet didn't exist yet, and because I was going to have to pay back my college loans and get my own health insurance, it just didn't occur to me to do anything other than go straight from college to graduate school. If I were giving myself advice now, back then, I would have encouraged myself to take a year or two and become sort of more of an adult in the world. But it worked out fine. And I went straight to law school. But the funny thing about that is that I went to law school with this sinking feeling that in the back of my mind, I knew I probably should have been a therapist instead. And so I landed myself at Harvard for law school, which in the mid 90s was not a super nice place. It's apparently much nicer now when they have an, I don't know, like free hot chocolate or something. But <laughs> it was not nice like that when I was there. It was kind of a scary place. You know, I just felt like the path immediately led me to find a group of people that cared about how they communicated with each other and how to understand what other people were thinking. And I, it both scratched the itch of the psychologist that I was never going to become and also made me feel more comfortable in this environment that was otherwise kind of cutthroat, which was not really my speed. And I, I often, when I, when I talk to young Dartmouth graduates or students, I often reflect on the fact that I feel like it was coming from a place like Dartmouth that gave me my sanity to hold, hold steady in a place like law school and not get caught up in someone else's rat race that was going to be both exhausting and not winnable and not really my path anyway. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so I don't know if that even really answers your, I feel like I skipped over a bunch of years somehow, but I knew I was yeah. going to law school. And so I guess the short answer is I felt like I got to be a pretty free spirit intellectually in college. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it will always go back. So don't, don't worry about hopping forward. So with that group in law school who really had that idea of this is about the law and it's about people of those about like did everybody go into law or did you see you know some of those fall out because they realized wait this isn't the way I wanted to go yeah, you know it's a great question because I think I'm the only person who really became and stayed a practicing attorney I got myself very involved in the program on negotiation at law school. And what that program produced is a lot of people who went full-time into conflict resolution which hmm. did for a period of time after I clerked, and very few people who became litigators like I later did. But I guess I always viewed it a little bit differently, which was I wanted to embody the practice of law with the philosophy of understanding that the most important thing about how to resolve complex problems is to understand the different perspectives. And so it's not really so much about advocating for your own viewpoint. It's really about knowing how to stay curious and, and open and, and understanding that you will be most persuasive and influential if you authentically get where other people are coming from and allow that to influence uh, your own viewpoint. And so it, it seems there's a lot of little different pivots in my career that seem like, well, that's a strange thing to do. And and how many jobs did you have? And what did you do after that? But to me, there's kind of always a thread, which is interdisciplinary. 
and my major in college was mm-hmm. you had to essentially have two different majors and then write a thesis that made sense of them both together. And I feel like that has really been the hallmark of what drives me both personally and professionally. And law seems to be a good nexus from which you can, you know, go in one direction or pull to a different direction because so much, you know, sociology, psychology, you know, you name it, um, has some bearing on the law or some legal aspect to it. So what were the the angles that drew you away into some little sub areas? Yeah. So the, the first 10 years after I graduated from law school, I think I might have had, I don't even know I lost count. I might have had like seven different jobs. I feel like, okay, so I, I sort of feel like the philosophy of how to be happy in life is not that hard. Like it has a couple of pieces. The main piece is to be a good egg, right? So when you go and you do something, if you can be particularly more junior in your career, and the good egg thing is not my own phrase, but someone once said it to me and it made a lot of sense. And so I, I try to always abide by this advice. You go and you have an experience, you're there to learn from it, and you're there to be responsible about it and to be a contributing part of the community. And, you know, it might not be your favorite job and you might not stay forever, but you should leave that job with the people who hired you thinking, well, I'd recommend that person or I'd hire them again, and that you got something from it. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't need to be forever, particularly when you don't have to be responsible for anybody else. I mean, I got married pretty late. I was responsible for myself. I had um, loan forgiveness. You know, the reason I chose the law school that I did was actually because I was going to have to pay for it myself. And I knew I was probably going to have some government jobs that didn't pay anything. So I actually needed to get into a law school that would pay back some of my loans or else I I don't know, I'd probably be in debtor's prison still. (laughs) So I think also in the beginning, again, I went straight to college. I went straight to law school. I was still becoming the person I was going to be. And I never handcuffed myself to a job or adopted a lifestyle that would handcuff me to a job financially. I felt like it was really important if you were going to work hard that you cared about the thing you were doing and you could get there every day. And sometimes it would turn out it wasn't the perfect job and then you move on, but you do it with, mm-hmm. with grace, which I think like seven out of eight jobs I achieved the doing it with grace. There's, you know, there's, so I'll ask you later about the eight. I think it's super important for everybody to get fired at some point <laughs> um, and learn the very hard lesson that righteous indig- indignation is not a great recipe for success. And it's better to, better to learn that early than it is late, but everyone should learn it firsthand. So the different pivots, I think, are because I was exploring, you know, am I somebody who liked to work in a fast-paced environment? Am I somebody who liked to have deadlines thrust upon me? Am I somebody who liked a lot of quiet? The answer to that is no. And it became sort of clear. I was somebody who cared about having an impact. I cared about doing something that I felt would help make the world a little bit of a better place. And I cared about not doing it alone. I really feel like I operate at my sort of highest self when I am surrounded by really positive, collaborative energy that is not cutthroat, but is generous. And so I constantly seek those types of communities professionally and personally. And again, I feel like when I look back at Dartmouth, 
that was part of the community value. There's enough room at the top for everybody. You just have to do it with honor. And so I just have no time and space and never have for any environment where that wasn't the philosophy. So sometimes I would try things on and that wasn't really the value system. And, and that's those are the times I knew it wasn't for me. And so Betsy, when you were choosing these various, a new opportunity comes and you say, okay, yeah, this is worth making a leap for. Is it because you knew consciously that you were going to test out another facet of that? Or was it something might be lacking here or, oh, this seems new and shiny and I'm just doing it. And in the hindsight, we're looking back and saying, oh, actually, I learned in that job that I don't want to be in a quiet environment. Or if I learned in that, you know, was it meditated or was it almost happenstance? It was kind of all of it and none of it and a little bit different. I think that I have always been pretty conscious of being observant and trying to learn from each experience. And so it was intentional that I would make an observation about what was working well and what wasn't working well in each of these environments that I found myself in. I would learn, okay, you know, I don't want, I had a job early on where I was working in a very small mediation boutique. In fact, I had turned down, <laughs> I turned down a job offer at a very large law firm after my clerkship. And I also withdrew my application from the State Department so that I could take this tiny job in this little itty bitty boutique mediation firm in, in DC. And I remember when I called the loan forgiveness people um, at law school, like even they were worried that this was a bad idea, right? <laughs> it was risky to them, but I felt like I was intentionally learning about myself each step of the way because I feel like growth for me, growth is like a guiding principle. I am always curious to grow and learn more and be around people who are growing and learning more and evolving. And despite the fact that I would not call myself like fundamentally either an optimist or a relaxed person, I nevertheless have a pretty calm inner core that it would all work out, right? That life was long and the journey was winding. And if you're a good person and if you weren't dead set on trying to achieve a certain thing, that you could a little bit take you where the current goes and make the most of it. And so that was the principle that I followed. And where did the current take you that you felt most willing to stay and grow within it rather than seek growth external from it? I mean, some of it is just, I think, a process of maturing and aging and, and sort of sorting out the different pieces. And, and some of the decisions were really surprising. So, for example, I for a while I worked on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and that was an incredibly interesting, super like a super neat job that I wouldn't trade for the world and I didn't want to stay at for a bunch of different reasons. And where I ended up after that was at a large defense firm, which in a million years, I never thought that I would go to, but I was kind of faced at this with this crossroads of I had gone to law school to be an, a functioning lawyer. And I was three, four years out of law school and I had had all these alternative type jobs. And so if I was gonna learn how to be a lawyer, I needed to do it pretty quick. And so I wanted to go to a big law firm that would teach me how to do that. And I thought, frankly, I would hate it, but I was gonna make the most of it and learn how to be a lawyer. And I think because I was a little bit older by then, and I understood my own responsibility to seek out mentors and sponsors, mm. sponsors and to make the most of the situation that I actually ended up quite happy there for a number of years. I never thought I'd stay forever, but I was there for 
I don't know, like like six years before I got recruited out to go back into government to go be the chief of staff for the attorney general in DC. And the reason I left the firm was because I realized that something I was missing there was I had had great and generous mentors, but there were no women that were living a life that I thought was livable. And still, I still wasn't. I was in my 30s by then, but I wasn't married yet. I wasn't even dating my now husband. But I thought, well, this is curious. And I'd like to see how somebody who looks and sounds a little bit more like me makes this happen. And so I took a huge leap, you know, off ramp, not knowing where I would end up. And, you know, it's funny, that job only lasted like nine months because we um, ended up resigning in civil protest against lawyers. Sorry. (laughs) And then I was out of work again went back to a different law firm that turned out to be maybe the one job that I didn't love. And after that job, I went to the place I am now where the former attorney general and I started a practice group where we represent states as their outside counsel. And I've been there for almost 11 years now. And uh, like that is shocking to me every time I think (laughs) I don't think I'll be there forever, but it's been a really wonderful platform to learn how to build something and shape something and, and continue to really, really grow as a person and a professional. Right. And helping even the field grow, because I know you've done a lot of work in leadership within the law and, you know, how you think that might not be done very well yet. And you're, you're helping them do that. Is that, is that politic enough? You know, I, I, it is true. I'm putting a lot of effort into this. It is also true that I'm not sure anyone is listening yet. So I kind of have this desire that before I leave the mainstream practice of law, that I will have some impact on the profession, both at the law school education phase of things and at the practitioner phase of things, because I care a lot about both. And, you know, I've been teaching now as an adjunct professor for, I don't know, like 19 years or something. I started pretty young. And so I, I see it from both ends. I think lawyers are a strange bunch. We essentially go to vocational school and it lasts a long time and it takes a lot of work, but it's treated like a vocational school. And I mention that term because I think it falls very far short of preparing whole human beings. Mm -hmm. And it's especially weird when you think about the fact that it's a profession that depends entirely on human talent. We don't make anything. We don't make any widgets. We don't produce anything. We just put our little brains, our little squirrel brains, you know, to use on a brief or in an argument or trying to, you know, defend somebody's rights. And we work in teams. And it's really super bizarre to me now that I've spent all these years studying organizational management and leadership development um, and change management, that the profession hasn't fully come on board yet with understanding that you have got to incentivize the skills and the kind of emotional intelligence and the curiosity and the sort of longitudinal learner's mindset that comes with modeling curiosity, even when you're very senior. So if I can make a little dent in that, I will fully feel that I have served a purpose in this profession. Well, I have this feeling that you will have done that um, and you already have, but you must do something outside of the law. I do. Um, in fact, I, I sort of feel like I do a bunch of things outside the law, some of which are the, the sort of non-legal side hustles of the trying to move the profession and help women um, in particular. And I sort of have this particular passion for, for women and minorities in the profession getting bigger, better voices in places of influence, but completely outside the law. 
I, <laughs> um, so I teach part-time in two different, very different environments. One is the academic setting and the other is my local gym. Nice. I knew you were going to say it. <laughs> so about 10 years ago, when I hung up my very last soccer cleats, when my Achilles tendons and my um, cervical spine could no longer take it, and my doctor uh, looked at me and said, you know, it ain't the NCAA anymore, <laughs> what you're doing, but it's time to retire. I um, got certified as a fitness instructor. Nice. And so I live like a total double life like full on with a microphone and teaching ballet bar and boot camp, you know, different, different persona entirely. I think it's really important to do certain things that just turn your brain off that part of your brain off. So you're fully present in something else. So I do things like that. I also about four years ago, went back to school myself because I have this real kind of acknowledgement for myself that like what makes the the sort of creative juices flow is like this very dynamic experience of being a learner and being a practitioner and also being a teacher. And I like to do all of those things, not always at the same time. I took a hiatus from teaching while I was doing the learning. I went back and I got my certificate in leadership coaching and I got another certificate in organizational change management. And, uh, you know, I do those things and I do a bunch of stuff for fun with my husband and now six-year-old son, an extraordinarily handsome nine-year-old dog. The husband and son are handsome too, but the dog's birthday was yesterday. <laughs> so, yeah. nice. so I am not sure actually how you do all of that. There's so much to juggle. And when you're taking these leadership roles and trying to, as you say, model leadership for others, that's, that's a big burden. But how do you how do you find the the well of energy to kind of bring to all of that? Yeah, I think I'm a kind of a naturally enthusiastic person, which is something that has become apparent to me as as time goes on. And I'm really, I just am enthusiastic about things that give people energy. And I think that authenticity is one of the most energizing forces out there. And so I have kind of endless energy to do things that feel true. And I think it's really important to find some balance in life and to live a healthy life. And honestly, the reason I teach at the gym is because you know, like, I don't think I'd go if I weren't on the schedule, <laughs> right, Especially right. not to make the $45 an hour that they pay me because my Lululemon bill is, you know, like far outweighs, <laughs> <laughs> that, but I know that I have to go. And so that kind of helps keep me on a schedule. I mean, I think in my in my next decade, one of the things I have to hold myself to is I know because I think about it and I read about it and I'm surrounded by people in the leadership field that talk about it, you have to make space. And I know that some of the best ideas are yet to come. And the fact that a lot of them right now are, are coming to me while I'm brushing my teeth in the morning is a mm -hmm. sign that there's not quite enough space. Right. And so I need to do some real thinking of, as with anything that's evolutionary, you have to make hard choices about what do you let go of, what do you preserve, and what do you build the capacity to let emerge? Because there's no room to let anything emerge if you're already stuffed up to your eyeballs. I think I do the leadership stuff now in equal parts because I feel like I have something to offer and service to other people. And I am holding my own feet to the fire to grow through it because I know I have stuff to learn. Yeah. So um, I by no means hold myself out as a model citizen of um, like daily mindfulness on how to make the perfect tranquil space. I'm on a never ending quest to exude peace 
I think I think I exude a little more enthusiasm than peace, but I will give myself at least high marks on being grounded. Yeah, well, that's great, and and hopefully you will be able to create that space because I think uh, you're astute for thinking. Like we all need that in this phase and stage of our lives, but. At the same time, we have so much to give in so many areas, as you do and you're showing, that it's kind of hard to make that decision of, okay, so what am I going to take energy away from so that I have space to give more energy back in the world? And and that's just a balancing act. And I don't know if you're starting to think of like how you're going to do I that. I mean, the, the threshold test for me is, am I present? Because if you're going through the motions, and, and presence is a word that gets tossed around a lot, but it, it means something very particular to me. It means sort of body grounded, eyes open, ears listening, attentive to the thing that's happening. And if I were to catch myself feeling like I wasn't present for the things that were important to me, parenting my son, listening to my friends, thinking about how to help myself and other people grow then that would be a very like significant rumble strip warning sign. The sort of more subtle, difficult to pay attention to warning sign is that you feel kind of fatigued. Mm-hmm. The fatigue will come, I think, for someone like me before the invasion on the presence, the sort of being really present will. And so I don't, anyway, it's just a thing I think about. I haven't mastered it yet. When I meet somebody who has mastered it, we'll, we'll have a session <laughs> together. Betsy, it's been a delight and a joy to get back in touch with you. And I can't wait to see where the next bits of energy and peace and presence take you. And thanks so much for being part of this. Thanks for making it happen, Leslie. This is such a great thing. That was Betsy Miller, partner at Cohen Milstein, who represents state attorneys general in civil investigations and litigation in areas that protect government interests and vulnerable communities. When she's not using her voice for your rights, you can find her using her voice to get you pumped up as a fitness instructor. And find me, Leslie Jennings Rowley, using my voice each week when we bring you another classmate story on Roads Taken. Roads Taken.